Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, if truth is the first casualty of war, are falsehoods the first weapon? We have information that indicates Russia has already pre-positioned a group of operatives to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine. False narratives are very much part of the Kremlin's playbook. They were used in 2008, before Russia's invasion of Georgia. We'll ask a former NATO spokesman if giving British weapons to Ukraine is giving Russia ammunition for disinformation. Also on SITREP, almost one in ten members of the armed forces are from ethnic minorities. So why is it only one in 300 are among the most senior officers? To hear that we're still not getting there is disappointing, as you can imagine. But that's not for want of trying, particularly at senior level. And we're in the Antarctic with the climate change champion for UK defence. It's just stunning, absolutely stunning. If you were to look up at it, you would actually see things that look like the Grand Canyon underneath of the ice. Last week, it was firm diplomatic talk on Ukraine. This week, it's been action. So much for de-escalation. Our view is this is an extremely dangerous situation. We're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack in Ukraine. Joe Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, was speaking after cyber attacks crippled Ukrainian government websites and Russia started moving thousands more troops to its western borders, saying it is for exercises. There's been action from the West too. We have taken the decision to supply Ukraine with light anti-armour defensive weapon systems. The short-range anti-tank missiles were flown into Ukraine on Monday, accompanied by a handful of UK troops to train Ukrainian forces in using the weapons. Mindful of how that might look, the Defence Secretary was at pains to stress the limitations of what was sent. Let me be clear. This support is for for short-range and clearly defensive weapon capabilities. They are not strategic weapons and pose no threat to Russia. They are to use in self-defence. And the UK personnel providing the early state training, as I've said, will return to the United Kingdom after completing it. He knows that Russia can and probably will portray this British military assistance as an act of NATO aggression. Indeed, he went as far as writing an essay for The Times warning of false narratives from President Putin. The US is going even harder on falsehoods, claiming not only is Russia misrepresenting Western actions, but it might attack its own Ukrainian allies so it can blame NATO. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby. We have information that they've pre-positioned a group of operatives to conduct what we call a false flag operation, an operation designed to look like an attack on them or Russian-speaking people in Ukraine, again, as an excuse to go in. Well, Professor Jamie Shea is former Deputy Assistant Secretary General of NATO. Um, Jamie, is a Russian false flag attack a realistic prospect or, or is it just the stuff of movies? Well, I think it's the stuff of movies here because uh, obviously uh, the Russians can't pretend that it's somebody else uh, that is attacking uh, Ukraine. They tried to pull this stunt off back in March 2014 when they illegally annexed Crimea by pretending that uh, it was not Russian soldiers, but it was so-called little green men uh, and friendly, polite people who were wearing military uniforms without Russian insignia. But six months later, Putin publicly came clean and said what everybody knows, that it was a Russian uh, secret 
secret forces uh, operation. But this time around, it's clearly the Russian army, 127,000 of them with tanks and 57 maneuver battalions that are on the border of, of Ukraine. And they could try to pretend, uh, rather like Nazi Germany tried to pretend with Poland in 1939, that they're reacting to some kind of provocation or attack organized by Ukraine. But I don't think they believe it. And certainly nobody else is going to believe it. And have we seen false flag operations used in recent conflicts? Well, false flag operations uh, certainly have been used, uh, for example, when it comes to cyber attacks. There was a famous example a few years ago where a French uh, TV channel went down under a a very brutal uh, cyber attack uh, where uh, the attackers planted all kinds of jihadist symbols and flags, making it look as if Al-Qaeda has done it. And uh, intelligence uh, sources uh, later on were unanimous in in concluding that it was the Russian GRU that was behind that attack. So certainly in the grey zone, in the hybrid zone, absolutely. But when it comes to attacking a country with a full-scale military force, uh, you can't hide that behind a false flag. And in this current situation, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has been pushing hard against false narratives by President Putin. The problem is he then sends weapons and a small number of troops to Ukraine the same day. Isn't he handing President Putin ammunition for claims of Western aggression, however false that narrative might be? Uh, The answer is no, because first of all, Russia has already invaded Ukraine twice. uh, So Ukraine is already defending itself against an illegal uh, aggression. And we are talking about a third attack, not the first attack. Secondly, it's perfectly legitimate under international law for countries to provide weapons to defend a partner, an ally. The other thing is that the Russians will accuse NATO of doing things whether it acts or doesn't act so if you're going to be criticized whether you do or don't do the best thing is to do and at least give ukraine a fighting chance of being able to defend itself against a russian onslaught and may many other nato countries follow ben wallace's excellent example the key thing though is that those systems arrive quickly enough so that ukrainians can be trained on them quickly enough so that they can have some kind of operational impact isn't there a danger though that the west looks like it's creating false narratives itself by claiming a false flag operation is being planned by claiming Russia could launch an attack at any moment, especially when you contrast that with what the Times correspondent, Anthony Lloyd, is reporting from the Ukrainian border. Life carries on entirely as normal. You don't see troop movements. You don't see ammunition convoys moving up. Troops haven't received fresh orders. There's no sense of an impending conflict here. Well, the the idea, of course, is not to give the Russians a convenient sort of casus belli in the way that, unfortunately, Mikhail Saakashvili, the former president of Georgia, gave the Russians a casus belli by trying to preempt a Russian attack in uh, South Ossetia in Georgia uh, back in 2008 by firing first. That was a disaster for him because the fact that the Georgians fired first then allowed the Russians to present that as a kind of humanitarian uh, peacekeeping operation. So the Ukrainians, I think, are mindful of that example. You're right, it's a question of balance but balance means that we don't doesn't mean that we sit on our hands and, and, and do nothing we're, we're not serving either ukraine nor our own defense in the long run if we simply sort of sit this one out on the sidelines but the west is stuck between a rock and a hard place here it either does nothing or accepts anything it does will be used by russia to justify its own narrative You are right. But again, this is a game that's been going on for a longer period where the Russians, for example, tried repeatedly to stop NATO enlargement in the 1990s by claiming that this would move some kind of NATO military juggernaut towards their borders in Eastern Europe. NATO enlarged. Uh, I lived through this experience at NATO headquarters. NATO put no troops whatsoever uh, in Eastern Europe, no nuclear weapons, no major NATO exercises were carried out. Uh, We presented absolutely no military threat to Russia whatsoever. 
but still it continued this kind of narrative that enlargement uh, was a threat and used it as a pretext to move very real numbers of Russian troops closer to NATO uh, in Ukraine uh, by invading Georgia, by refusing to remove its forces from uh, uh, Moldova. So the West has a duty to absolutely debunk this sort of propaganda narrative that Russia is somehow the victim when the historical record, I think, shows convincingly that it's very much the, the other way around. And as a former spokesman for a NATO Secretary General, uh, narratives and communication are your speciality. So what would you be advising right now if you were still in NATO HQ? Well, uh, I don't think NATO is doing a bad job, and so probably they don't need my uh, advice. But what I would say is that, first of all, uh, a balanced message, um, which I think the Secretary General Stoltenberg has sent very well. On the one hand, firmness with Russia. But where it comes to where legitimate Russian concerns can be met, a willingness to engage. So defence, but dialogue. Deterrence, yes, but but also uh, deterrence. That's the best way of, of, of carrying it forward. But where you're dealing with abject propaganda, that flies in the face of the facts. You know. um, there was a, once a very famous uh, uh, French uh, Prime Minister, Clemenceau, who, who was once asked, you know, uh, who was responsible for the outbreak of the First World War. And Clemenceau famously answered, well, I know one thing at least, Belgium did not invade Germany. There are certain irrefutable facts. Uh, and where Russia clearly manipulates the facts, uh, the West has to push back vigorously. And as I said earlier, put its own demands on the table. You know, we shouldn't just allow the Russians to drive this process all the time and to define the narrative themselves. That was former NATO spokesman Professor Jamie Shea. Well, Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is here. Uh, Michael, we'll talk in a moment about the information war, but I just want to bring in another word that's being used a lot this week, miscalculation, the risk of a war being started by accident. How real is that risk right now and how could that happen? Well, it is uh, reasonably realistic, and we're not talking here about miscalculation in the sense that uh, President Putin does things he doesn't intend to do or somehow gets Western intelligence wrong. It's more a question of whether he miscalculates Western resolve. I mean, he's, he's pushing on NATO's um, consensus. He's pushing on Biden's courage, as it were, and he doesn't quite know how far he can push. Um, and the, the issue of miscalculation may be that he can't find a way out. And remember, he, he, he built up his troops in May last year, May 2021, and then stood them down again in a similar process. He's built up more troops this time. This is a much bigger threat. And they're now at the peak moment. I mean, we've discussed on this program before that the danger period will be late July to the middle of February for all sorts of military and meteorological reasons. So we're in that period now where he either has to go or stand down. And it may now be quite difficult for him to stand down. And so the miscalculation issue is not mis mistakes as such, but a strategic miscalculation that he cannot find another way out. And NATO is very aware, I think, that they want to find mechanisms that would allow him to stand down rather than just say, OK, I've decided not to and look weak in the eyes of his own generals. And throw into the mix uh, the latest statement by Joe Biden, who has said, uh, suggested a minor incursion by Russia would lead to a fight in the alliance about how to respond. How much more has that complicated the situation and perhaps undermined NATO's narrative? 
Well, yes, he speaks no more than the truth. Um, but whether it was sensible for the president to say this in public, I don't know. And the reason he speaks no more than the truth, that only yesterday, President Macron did something very, very unhelpful and said, we shouldn't be allowing NATO and the United States to define our position here. We, the Europeans, should have our own strategic position. Well, you know, yes, Mr. Macron, but if that's true, then not not now, not in the middle of this, not not when you're, you, you need to show unity uh, towards uh, President Putin and, and Russian military power. So there are evidence, there is evidence of cracks in the Western lines, particularly if, if Putin, as it were, did something far, far less than an invasion of Ukraine, but militarized the crisis a bit more, then it's a fair bet that NATO would find itself um, struggling to maintain unity. So President Biden was speaking truthfully. I'm not sure if he was speaking wisely when he said that. Mm. On the question of false narratives and information war, that's nothing new. The old term was propaganda, which is still a concept woven through Britain's military doctrine. The UK conducts information operations. Are we truly innocent of disinformation ourselves? Oh, no, of course not. I mean, we use disinformation all the time, but we use it in, in a tactical sense. I mean, deception and uh, 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 evasion and decoy actions. That's what the military does. I mean, you would expect that. But there is a difference between as a tactical disinformation for a military purpose and strategic truth. And in this respect, the West is trying to be strategically truthful because we don't try to suppress the press. We know that the world's press is looking and the world's press is, is saying, well, what is all this about? You know, what is the what is the problem which the Russians have with Ukraine? They've, as Jamie Shea said, they've invaded it twice already. They've taken pieces of it. Are they going to do a, do a, a sort of Hitler 1930s thing and try to take the rest of it at some point in the future? The, you know, the world can see this so strategically, the West does try to be honest because we, we we keep lines open to the to the global press and in a way the longer this crisis goes on the more obvious it is what President Putin is doing he's manufactured this crisis out of nothing he's trying to get something out of it now in the longer term it's a short-term crisis in Ukraine that he's created he's trying to manufacture it to get some sort of long-term gain and the longer it goes on the more the world can see that so in a strategic sense we don't go in for deception, we go in for truthfulness because the world can make up its own mind. But tactically, yes, of course, we, we play games when it comes to military operations. And for the UK and the rest of NATO, countering disinformation carries its own risk of miscalculation. Factual accuracy is not the same as presenting the whole picture. You risk undermining your credibility if you oversell your position, don't you? Yeah, and that's one of the difficulties that NATO is facing now, that if it, it oversells its, its unity and its resolve, and then that resolve is tested, then it may be that, that the, you know, the publics of, of Western Europe are not prepared to take the sacrifices or take the dangers. And so the West has got to be very careful. I think Jamie Shea was very aware of this in the, in the interview that he gave you, that they've got to get it right. They've got to be clear what the threat is, clear what our response can be whether or not we will do it but don't oversell the idea that we're walking into war because we're not we're not going to fight for ukraine directly but we will make it clear to russia that if you if you take military action against ukraine the reaction of us our reaction will be such that you'll wish you hadn't done it because everything will get worse for you on many other fronts michael clark stay with us news discussions and analysis this is sitrap Diversity and inclusion is essential to our operational effectiveness. So said last year's Defence Review. We are determined that the armed forces should better reflect the ethnic composition of the British population. That was also from a Defence Review. 
1998. While the armed forces as a whole have become much more diverse since then, at the very top they remain almost entirely white. In the regular army, there are just five or fewer black Caribbean or Asian officers ranked colonel or above. For equivalent senior officers in the Royal Navy and RAF, there are none. So why, when around one in 11 members of the armed forces are from ethnic minorities, are they barely represented in the top jobs? Well, Colonel Lucy Giles is divisional director within Army Division and before that was the first female president of the Army Officer Selection Board. Well... The Army is trying, and across the armed forces as well, to increase our recruiting from ethnic minority communities because we recognise the importance of diversity within our workforce. You know, you get a very different dynamic and a different way of thinking, I think, when you've got a more diverse groups of people. So to hear that we're still not getting there is disappointing, as you can imagine. But that's not for want of trying to increase our numbers and our representation, particularly at a senior level. Across the armed forces, there are more than 1,500 people at the equivalent rank of colonel or above. Just five are black Caribbean or Asian. Why is that? I think the reality is that it takes a while to grow our talent. And when you're trying to recruit from diverse backgrounds, which can be challenging as well, and you juxtapose those two, um, it, that's why I think our numbers don't stand up to the scrutiny that they it should be. So it can take a number of years for our recruits to reach those senior leadership levels is, is the bottom line. But I know of some really talented people coming up through. I know I've commissioned a number of them in a former role and um, they're brilliant people. And it's just a matter of time for waiting for them to uh, get into those uh, top positions. You say it's a matter of time. The figures say just 0.3% of those most senior roles are taken by Black Caribbean or Asian personnel. The proportion for the forces as a whole has been notably higher than that for decades. It does suggest there are extra barriers. Well, we do have uh, 14,000 people now um, from the from ethnic minority backgrounds. That's a pretty significant number of personnel in the army um, and in the armed forces. But you're right, it's not necessarily proportioned in the right balanced way and in some of those senior positions. I'm not sure that there is necessarily specific barriers. But I can only speak from the experience of being a minority myself as a female in the army. Um, sometimes the policies haven't been, haven't been in place to be able to enable a seamless and, more, and an easier way to get into some of the more senior positions. But those have been broken now and are getting better. So, so from your experience, you say you are a minority as in being a woman. What do you think the biggest change could be that would make a difference? Certainly from my own experience, I know that a lot of self-belief was required and support and empathy, you know, belief that I can go in, into some of these um, more male-dominated environments. That has been helpful for me personally. And the policies allowing um, equality of opportunity, of course, have been massively helpful for women in the army. But for the ethnic minorities, uh, those uh, opportunities uh, are out there. It's just perhaps having the confidence to be able to go to some of these organisations and for also for people like me, for people like my contemporaries and colleagues to ensure that we talent spot people and make sure that we give them those opportunities as well. So what are the forces doing to improve diversity and representation at the most senior levels? 
I think there is a lot of work that, that's going on um, across the three services in the personnel space. You will have seen the commitment made by the Joint Chiefs um, in uh, July 2020. That has having tangible effects um, across certainly the army, which is my lived experience. I was only in a conference last week with the commander of the field army, and I looked across the room and I saw all his reverse mentors there from diverse backgrounds and from private to major. I mean, when they, the army board is saying that they are making a, trying to make a difference and they are wanting to listen, and I saw it in front of my eyes that they are actually meaning what they say. You were president of the Army Officer Selection Board. Do you feel you were able to make an impact on the diversity of those coming in at the start of the chain? The recruiting element in the Army is a partnership working with Capita. Uh, so we, do, we don't get people into the Army Officer Selection Board, but it's a collegiate activity. But from my point of view, what I did see was a lot of talented people coming through uh, from all walks of life and from all backgrounds. I have seen quite a few women and people from multicultural backgrounds um, actually succeed and they will be joining the Army um, moving into the future. We, would, we need more numbers, though. When you look at the whole issue of getting more people from ethnic minorities into higher ranking positions, is there a risk of a vicious circle here? Because people from ethnic minorities don't see themselves represented at the top. They don't feel they'll be allowed to realise their full potential. So they just don't want to join. And you miss out on the talent you really need to redress the balance. Well, you do. And it's not lost on me that you're speaking to a female in the army, a woman in the army, um, and not somebody from a different multicultural background. But all I can say is that there are definitely those people coming up. I know I've commissioned uh, someone recently, Kadani Kowsland, sort of on a winner, MBE recently, and a great advert for the Rastafarian networks that we have in the army. He's a talented um, young man and he will, um, I'm sure, do extremely well. But then there are plenty like him. But we certainly need to make sure that we put in positive role models into some key appointments, I think, to make the point. But I know, because I've seen them, there's some mm. very talented people coming up through. It's been suggested that more radical solutions are needed, such as lateral entry, where people can move sideways into a forces career without having to start at the very bottom, if they have the right talents and experience to offer. Would you consider that? There is a programme at the moment called Castle that is uh, looking at the various different personnel strategies we could be employing into the future. One of them is looking at lateral entry. It was being discussed um, a year or so ago. Uh, I'm not from the Castle team. I can't tell you where they're at with that, but they've got a significant online presence. And I would say to your listeners, if you think that's a great idea, then you approach the team. Um, I know the head of Programme Castle personally, and I know he'd be absolutely up for any challenges or any good ideas. The Defence Command paper last year said diversity and inclusion is essential to our operational effectiveness. Why is it important to operational effectiveness? If you've got a broader number of people on the team with a different perspective, and it doesn't have to be a protected characteristic, it can be different experiences and backgrounds, ranks, whatever. If, if you've got those people as part of your planning team or as part of your deployed force, actually it will give you an advantage, an operational advantage in a number of different ways. For example, if you are deployed to Mali and you're looking to gather various uh, intelligence information, if, you, um, if you're not female and you can't go to half of the um, 
uh, to, to half of the villages or speak to, to a significant part of the population to get some of that information. Diverse groups in all its colour um, are very important to, and it's exactly what we need in the British Army. You talk about your your hopes for improving diversity at the top of the armed forces and say there are people coming through. It is going to happen. How long is it going to take? I'd like to say that it, it can happen in the next um, few years. I'm absolutely convinced we will certainly see people in the general staff from a multicultural, multicultural background by then. But it, it does take time to grow our, in the hierarchical system that we work in at the moment, that it does take time to get people there. But we are heading in absolutely the right direction. Colonel Lucy Giles. The general who wrote the MOD strategy on climate change and sustainability has been to Antarctica to see the effects of global warming. Richard Nugy left the army last year after 36 years and he's now campaigning for militaries worldwide to do their bit to reduce emissions. BFBS reporter Simon Newton went with General Nugy on his fact-finding mission to the bottom of the globe. After a three-day sailing from Argentina, Antarctica finally looms into view. It's just stunning, absolutely stunning. General Nugis travelled 9,000 miles to see this for himself and learn what's at stake if the world, including the UK Armed Forces, doesn't rapidly reduce its carbon footprint. Those who say uh, the MOD are bigger misses, yes we are. Those who say the MOD shouldn't be getting involved in climate security, I would fundamentally disagree. Seeing Antarctica, you realise if this disappears, the enormous impact that will have on the rest of the world. The edge of Antarctica is warming faster than any other part of the planet, a symptom of global warming. Nearly all the glaciers here are melting, endangering the lives of the continent's populations of penguins, seals and other marine life. But what you see is the pure majesty, the hugeness of the mountains coming right down to the sea. The general believes the military can play its part and that it's actually in its own interest to do so. If we come second in a war, we still come second in a war. It's not about that. It's still about being the very best we can. But if we can find ways of being better through embracing some of the new technologies that are um, around now and on the horizon, which produce green energy, that produce recycling, that reduce the amount of waste that we then have to take back to some other place and dump, then the real support is actually enhancing our military capability. General Nugi commanded British forces in Basra and was ISAF Chief of Staff in Kabul during Op Herrick. He believes embracing new green tech could actually save lives on operations. The Americans think that between two and 3,000 soldiers were killed in Iraq and Afghanistan on a logistic resupply. We lost our most senior officer in Afghanistan, a lieutenant colonel. Actually, he was infantry on a logistic resupply. So if you can find ways where you reduce the amount of logistic support that you need through thinking about sustainability, through producing our own electricity, by producing our own water to a certain extent, then actually you're saving lives at the same time. Here in Antarctica, the ice-free period now lasts three months longer than it did in 1979. This rise in sea temperature is actually melting the glaciers from below, out of sight. On the shore of Coverville Island, in the midst of a snowstorm, General Nugi meets Dr Tracy Allen, a geologist from the State University of New York. So what you're getting is you're getting warm water coming down from the equator, 
Right. Now, coming through the Antarctic convergence, and you're what? They're, and they're coming under the glaciers, right. and that is melting the glaciers far faster than we're actually seeing on the surface. It, far faster on the surface, absolutely. So, but that again is in the western part of Antarctica, and what's happening is they're following old glacial trenches, and so you can imagine during a period when the glaciers extended much further out at the last glacial maximum, they created trenches. And essentially what's happening is the warm water is following the troughs, those trenches, and they're coming up underneath of the glaciers. They're coming up underneath of the, the fast ice and they're melting it from the bottom up. If you were to look up at it, you would actually see things that look like the Grand Canyon underneath of the ice. Antarctica is a global climate indicator. What happens here matters. The military's drive to lower its own greenhouse gases, one way it can help in the fight to preserve this most precious of places. And Simon is with us now. Uh, Simon, what was it like being there? Pretty incredible, I imagine. Yeah, it was it was a really magical, magical place, just vast and, and going to see somewhere that the likes of Shackleton, for instance, have been to before to see it uh, was just amazing. There will be people wondering, did you really need to go to Antarctica yourselves to fact find? What was the reason for General Nuji being there in person? Well, that's a good question. I mean, he was there for two reasons, really. First, he's actually the patron of a, an Antarctic expedition, Antarctic Quest, which is being carried by, out by a group of veterans. They're carrying out climate change research, so he was there in, in that capacity. But yes, as you can hear, he's genuinely passionate about the environment and the effects of global warming, which are often, I guess, a bit nebulous and hard to actually see. So going somewhere like Antarctica, it was a chance for him to actually see for himself what's at stake, to talk to scientists like you heard there, uh, as we did, to really shed some light on the concrete effects that this warming of our planet is, is having. And to be frank, he knows that by doing this, he'll, he'll bring more attention to what he's talking about, you know, far more than, say, appearing at COP or, or putting out a press release. This grabs people's attention on this issue, and that's what he really wants. Well, let's bring back in uh, Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, we've talked a lot in the past about the Arctic, the high north and its strategic importance, the military competition for access there. Does the Antarctic have any military strategic significance or competition for access? Yes, it's not the same as the Arctic because the Arctic and the high north, you know, is a strategically important area because of the route between the Atlantic and the Pacific and the uh, the fact that Russia and Canada and America are all looking at each other across the Arctic. The Antarctic is much more remote and so it doesn't have that same, it's not positioned strategically in the same sort of way, but there are enormous potentials in the Antarctic. It, they are potentials, but I mean, the Antarctic is known to contain uh, precious metals, cobalt and titanium, uranium, magnesium. Uh, even coal. Now, it's all very difficult to get at because it's the Antarctic. And also remember that, you know, there's only only 3% of the water in the world is fresh water available for human use. 97% is seawater. And of that 3%, two thirds of it, two of those three percentage points are actually tied up in the Antarctic glaciers. So mm. in the ice shelf itself, so it's fresh water. And as, as we go forward into the 21st century, the minerals and the water of the Antarctic will probably loom larger. And what we've got at the moment in, in treaty terms, there's the 1959 Antarctic Treaty, which is a very general treaty, not to militarize the continent. Well, that's fine, but that treaty will probably become out of date as we go on and the Antarctic becomes more accessible to those countries that are interested. And Michael, General Nuji clearly believes passionately in making militaries greener. Certainly there is a very public commitment from UK defence. But for serving commanders, can they really prioritise it in the same way? 
Well, I think he answered that question himself in a way. He said, yeah, of course, when it comes to battle or operations, you know, the environment is not top of any commander's mind. I mean, after all, you know, the military are there to kill people and break things. That's ultimately their their role. But for all of the 99% of their existence where they're not doing that or not likely to do that, then they're like any other big organization. And like all big organizations, they have to show to the population, their own populations and the world population, that they take environment seriously. And if the technologies of, of uh, green technologies are as good as they look as if they could be, then this won't just be an extra burden on commanders. It will be a better way of doing things. It might even be a cheaper way of doing things if we can get to that point. So I think it is important that the military embraces green technologies, even though, you know, when it comes to battle, commanders will fight with everything that they've got available to hand. Simon, you've been reporting on climate change issues for some time now. Actually being in Antarctica, did that show you anything that surprised you? What's your one big takeaway? Well, we've actually we've got a whole series coming looking at how the, the services are going green. But the thing that struck me most, I think, really, was, was the wildlife. Just hearing how penguins, for instance, there was there was a lot of penguins around. But the, the Adelie penguin in particular, for instance, is being fo- forced further south because of, of the warming waters. The result is they'll be forced to, to lay their eggs on snow rather than rock because they can't find any, which means they essentially won't survive. So so their very existence uh, is being threatened by climate change. And that was a just one example, a pretty stark example of what global warming is doing. And that really stuck with me. And you can watch the film of Simon's visit to the Antarctic on the Forces News YouTube channel. It's online now. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Professor Michael Clark. And thank you to all of our guests. We're back with another sit rep next Thursday. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.